my neighborhood, we moved there eight years ago, and it was uh, a beautiful, what are those? You, you know those specifically? Well, sure. Those are Canada geese. They were huge. They're big. Yeah. I learned recently there's two types. There's, there's, you just think there's Canada geese, but there's not. There's ones called, um, what are they called? Cack cacklers, and they're like the same... Or they're the exact same. They're just a little bit smaller, and their noses are different. So if you see a bunch of Canada geese, there's two types in there. All right. Can we that. just address the fact that you're saying Canada geese when everyone else is saying Canadian geese? They're wrong. It's the Canada goose. Are you one of these guys that is going to say something repeatedly until someone calls you on it just so you can tell people? No, I'm this? a guy that uh, correctly identifies birds <laughs> by their <laughs> name. host and today's topic I am using binoculars. My guests are Adam Caton Holland, stand-up comedian, TV show creator and author and avid bird watcher and Michael Kelly, actor from House of Cards and uh, many movies and Jack Ryan now as well. I had as a kid at my grandfather's house binoculars. He had these binoculars that sat on the table in the living room. He lived on the water. And so it seems that any house that was on a lake or on an ocean always had binoculars. Chance to look out at something, birds, the tides. For little kids, you looked at people. Who's that guy over there? You always want to grab binoculars. And as with my kids now, they always want to use binoculars. They're like, oh, can I get those binoculars? And I'm like, yeah, but you're holding them the wrong way. You're making everything smaller, and when you're supposed to be making it bigger, but they don't care. They just want to have binoculars. And for my wedding, my mother had this woman as a friend. That's a weird way to say it. My mother had a friend <laughs> um, who my mother would write interior design articles with and for. She was a very sophisticated and intellectual artists, I guess. She was interested in so many things. I remember going to her apartment for the first time in Cambridge and it had this amazing view. And she was she was older, much older than my mom, but she was still elegant and sophisticated and her house was very minimal. Whereas with my grandmother everything was stacked up, boxed everywhere, and she was just wearing whatever. This woman was always so well put together. And when I got married this woman, Estelle, gifted my wife and I two sets of binoculars. And they were smaller, vintage binoculars. I wouldn't expect anything different from her. Now, you might be saying, oh, she probably just grabbed them from her collection or off the shelf and thought, oh, I'll just give them these gifts because I didn't have anything else. That may be the case. For me, I didn't care. I thought they were interesting. I thought it was unique. I don't think anyone else... I don't know. Do you know anyone who got binoculars as a wedding gift? The thing I liked about them is that I imagine she would take them if she was going to a ballet or to the opera. These were that kind of binoculars. They were smaller. Things you would take to an indoor event, not something to go bird watching or if you were looking out on your seashore or seaside home. They were small. And I always thought it was an very interesting wedding gifts because I wondered, is this her way of saying, like, look to the future, there's one for you and one for them. So a set for myself and a set for my wife that 
even when you're together in a marriage, you both should be having your own objectives or your own views. <laughs> you might be saying, you're, Jay, you're really reading into this wedding gift. But when someone sends you binoculars as a wedding gift, that's all you do is you, you don't, it's not like we, like in our registry, we put binoculars. You know what I mean? You've never seen a registry. So I'm like, oh, they want those binoculars. Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's, I, I think you'd be more apt to see a bow and arrow set on someone's wedding registry than binoculars. So I, and knowing this woman, Estelle, who everything about her had a thought behind it, whether it was what scarf she wore or why she stacked uh, the books on the right side of her windowsill and not the left, where did she like her negative space, or how she would lay out an article for Traditional Home Magazine or the Boston Globe, an interior design article about a house, why she picked that house. Everything for her there's a reason behind it. So that these binoculars were always very precious to me. And then having my kids always wanting to use them. And when we go on walks at night, they'll have them around their necks and we're going around the neighborhood and they look like little adventures on a safari hunt. And I kind of just wanted an excuse to talk about how special I thought they were as a gift. And I wanted an excuse to talk about Estelle, I guess, because she... My mom and I are, are similar in that we're kind of people collectors. We have such a different group of friends. In that, I mean, we have an eclectic group of friends, or eclectic group of friends. My mom has a very eclectic group, different people from different walks of life. And I myself, being a comedian and a writer and an actor, but at the same time, someone who mixes it up with their neighbors and someone who dives into friendships with my wife's friends because I enjoy people. My friends span all across the country from people I grew up with, went to college with, became friends with in Los Angeles, met through comedy, met through acting. And I really felt as though Estelle and this gift was a real symbol of that. And I felt as though the two guests that I would have on today would be a symbol of that Eclectity? Is that even a word? Eclectity? Eclecticness? I wish I had a bigger vocabulary. It's something that I always, when you hear people use big words, you're like, man, I'd love to use that word. And then the back here goes, yeah, if you knew what it meant. But for me, I had so many interests outside of comedy and writing, and I wanted to talk to other artists that have interests outside of their art form or just regular people who had interests outside of their regular life. And this episode is pretty unique in that both of my guests I just want to sit down with. And I didn't know a topic that I would have to talk to them about. And when I first talked to Adam, Adam Caton Holland, my first guest, I he had written a new book, a memoir, about living in Denver, selling a TV show, and his relationship with his family and his sister. And I read it and I was completely blown away. It was so amazing. I'm like, we just got to sit down. I don't know what we'll talk about. I don't know what the through line is going to be, but I want to sit down with you. And I said, do you have any interesting hobbies or anything like we could talk about? He's like, I don't know. And I just, I don't know why, but the binoculars just came up in my head. I go, do you have binoculars? Do you own binoculars? <laughs> Which is a really weird leading question. And he goes, well, yeah, you know, I'm a big bird watcher. And I go, you are? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, I've spoken at the Audubon Society the last two years in a row. I'm like, we're going to do binoculars. I didn't think about how I was going to get the next guest. I just knew, I just want to sit down and talk with him about bird watching 
and everything else that comes from it because he's an interesting person. And luckily enough, uh, my second guest as well, we were on the red carpet at a movie premiere and I said, hey man, I'm coming to New York. I'd love for you to do my podcast. And he goes, oh, I'd love to. What, you have, uh, what do we talk about? I'm like, well, do you have any hobbies? And he kind of gave me this look like, what, you think you, what, you got a lot of hobbies? <laughs> and I go, no, I'm just saying... I go, I don't know, any chance you have binoculars? And he goes, well, I just bought binoculars for my kids. And I was like, that's perfect. So on today's episode, we'll sit down with Adam Caton Holland in Denver, Colorado, and Michael Kelly in New York. So let's go to City Park in Denver, Colorado, mid-conversation where I'm talking to Adam Caton Holland about my experience with Boy Scouts and how he got into birdwatching. field and just look at stars and you would learn about stars and you'd learn how to build a fire and you would learn how to sail and you know there was bird watching I never did it and so bird watching at that level feels like a chore and I don't think you gotta come to it naturally you can't just force it on a person I get that most people think it's really fucking boring but I think it's thrilling and I think it makes you way more observant how many people in the world do you think have ever said bird watching is thrilling <laughs> honestly I don't know five or six no, dude, we're growing. Hundreds. <laughs> hundreds. Um, like, I, I remember there was a trumpeter swan. It's like the biggest flying bird in North America. These things are big fucking swans. How big? Like, uh, I mean... I, do you judge a bird in size by wingspan? And weight. Okay. So they're they're big fucking birds. And the one landed at Chatfield Reservoir here. They're not... They're not around here, yeah. but it was like all the birders were buzzing about it. It's, you, you know, it's like, dude, there's the a trumpeter. The birders swan. were buzzing. You'd, By the way, a great 950s doo-wop song. <laughs> the birders were buzzing. <laughs> yeah, wasn't that Frankie Buddha Valley? Papa. Yeah. So I got wind of it. Me and the missus went out to Chatfield, and it was the Is first. She into bird watching too? Yeah, I've okay. gotten her into it, and we fucking found the thing. We wandered around. We like figured out map coordinates. We found the swan. And it's like this amazing treasure hunt yeah. that took us I don't know five hours to achieve. But I felt such satisfaction. It was crazy. I love that. It's like a it's a treasure hunt. I mean, that is amazing, but that's not typically what bird watching is, is it? Knowing there's a bird somewhere and then trying to find it. There's I always feel like approaches it's like, to birding. Okay, so what are some other approaches? Well, there's the dudes that are like uh, the big year guys. You get like a, there's there's people that just are fanatic about listing mm -hmm. and they want to get I don't know there's probably 600 species of Bucket bird list their thing they want to see every single one to me that's weird you're not staying and enjoying the bird and checking it out you're just ticking it off on the yeah. list because you're trying to outdo the next guy yeah so that's but a lot of people do that um, and then there's just like backyard birding which is more what I am but that yeah going down and tracking down a certain bird. I mean, if you get into it like I do, you're just on these email lists and you kind of like check in on eBird and they're like, oh, this crazy aberration bird is in Colorado. You should go try to find it. Oh, that's bad. I mean, that is cool. That it is, is cool. like that's like something I feel like you do with your your kids. And if you get a kid into that, because man. just like this podcast is a through line with the binoculars and we're talking about tons of other things, you take your son or your daughter bird watching to find a bird you're going to learn how to use a map you're going to learn how to like pack food hike totally. navigate maybe you camp out overnight you know i don't know and you, you know. see other things while you're doing it as well i think it's really cool because of observation like you travel yeah. for a living so do i every state's got different birds yeah. so if you start noticing that shit it's like it's great it's, yeah. it makes the experience richer but where did it like so we went away every year summer we'll go away and take a trip and every year we go somewhere 
I don't know why it's just maybe the houses we pick, but they normally don't have a TV or anything. Yeah. And we, we got this one in Beverly, Massachusetts last year, and it used to be a, a, a kid's camp the house right on the ocean and the kids room was like the bunk room so they both of their beds had like like a bookshelf around it and they were like bird books and stuff like that so recently i was in nicasio california which is near like petaluma and close to sonoma but you know and i stopped at this little spot and they had a book stand out front and i grabbed a bird book an insect book and like a tree book, mm-hmm. and I go to pay from the guy. Goes, oh, that's a free library out there. God, take them. And I'm building bunk beds for the kids, and I'm building a, a shelf. Oh, that's great. And I'm gonna put all those in there, and I'm put a little light because that's the thing I want them to go to bed and grab. Like, Whoa, what is this? Because you'll look at a bird book, or you know, if even if I'm living in Los Angeles in a concrete jungle, I still want to do as much as I can to show them that. Absolutely. Stuff. Did that you get a bird book or anything like that that like got your appetite? Well, I, your beak? I didn't start getting into it until probably like 10 years ago when I read this book called Grail Bird. And it's about this bird called the ivory-billed woodpecker, mm-hmm. which they thought was extinct. Uh, it's like Woody Woodpecker is an ivory-billed woodpecker. It's okay. this amazing, giant woodpecker. How like, big? I mean, the biggest, it was the biggest bird, wood, woodpecker. So probably like a foot tall. Okay. Um, but they used to call it the Lord God bird because people would say like Lord God what a bird um, and so they thought it was extinct it's, it was it exists in like the bayou in like this old wood Arkansas Louisiana and after the Civil War they chopped down a lot of that lumber the north did kind of petulantly shipped it off and a lot, they thought those birds went extinct but it was like rumored that you know, locals would say like it's around. That bird's not extinct. I've seen that bird. Amazing. And, uh, this guy who was the head of the Cornell Department of Ornithology, which is the big, big birding uh, institution, basically wrote this book to set out to find that that bird. Yeah. And it was like this adventure book, and he's in you know a kayak going through the woods trying to find these birds, and he found it, and basically said this bird is not extinct. And like some people don't believe his evidence, so it's like the most divisive bird ever like some people are like that didn't he's full of shit that bird's extinct and other people are like he's dead on and now other people have seen it and so how, what, what, i read that book and i was like this is fucking fascinating yeah. like the whole thing is fascinating and and like that i was just a, a switch flipped and really? so yeah that book grail bird just like i don't know it's one of my favorite books because it set me on this whole new path how many like species of bird do you think you can identify hundreds mm, no no maybe a hundred Wow. But like, I think with birding, it's just like, like I can tell you everything in this park. Yeah, I know my area well, and I'm starting to know bird calls. But I'll go birding with dudes that are like old, like 70 year old men who are just fucking ninjas, and they know everything by sound. They know every single bird that you're not even seeing yet. They've identified it and moved on. I like, just see them sitting on a stump whittling, and then you hear like, <laughs> and they don't even look up. They're like, that's a blue tail pheasant. <laughs> they're all cool though. They're all like liberal. They all drink beer. Yeah. They're just like, I'd like to be an old bird watching man. There's nothing wrong with it. I feel, no. I feel like bird watching is like a different version of fishing. It totally is. You know, it's just like a, it's like people who fish, I feel like they just want to be connected to nature, whether they know it or not, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like an excuse to just sit in one place and be calm and take something in, you know? Absolutely. And when you really set out to go on a bird watching trip, which I've been on several, I mean, it's just... How long will you go? I've gone... Well, I've only... Like a day or two. Yeah. Yeah. There's this one trip I want to go to Cuba that'd be badass. Um, but like, like, for example, do you know what sandhill cranes are? 
They're like uh, Nebraska's big bird. They're, it's a crane. Yeah. And they're large and they have red heads. And basically they migrate through Nebraska every year by to the where? hundreds of thousands of them. They're going up to uh, like Alaska. Okay. And so they stop uh, in Nebraska for about a month and they just kind of feed and get fat and they sleep in the Platte River on the riverbanks because no predators will come get them. So you go and like, I went up to Nebraska, sat in a viewing blind. You go out there before the sun rises and you can hear them like chirping and stuff. The sun starts to rise and there's just thousands of these massive cranes right there in front of you in the river. And then at some point they just all take off at the same time, After just flooding the sky. So it's like the coolest shit. Did you go for when they were taking off? Can you um, time it like that? Or? Well, that just every day they'll take off and move to a new spot. Oh, yeah. So I saw them all. Just, I mean, and that was the coolest thing I'd done in a long time. Yeah, I'm sure. So stuff like that is just kind of, like you said, it's like putting down your phone, getting out. For sure. And it's, you know, kind of witnessing the miracles of, of the earth. Yeah. Migration patterns of birds always intrigues me. Like, how do they know, like... How long has it been going on? You know what I mean? Yeah, like hundreds yeah, exactly. of thousands of years. I, I mean, mean I don't knows? even know. Were dinosaurs doing these migration routes and it's just like that far in their yeah. DNA? I yeah. have no clue. Because like um I always love that they'll just like you know, like where is it? San Juan Capistrano, the swallows. Yeah, sure. Have you gone to that? I have not. I mean I'm not. That you gotta put that on your list if you Dude, have there's one. There's so many things I wanna do. Yeah. I wish I just had more time and money. I'd do this I all know, the time. Are I... there like other ones that people like cause the swallows <laughs> is some like you just hear about it. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, San Juan Capistrano and the Swallows. Right. There's all sorts of shit. Like, I want to do a TV show. I want to be the Anthony Bourdain of birds. And I want to go around. Each episode is like, we're going to Mongolia. These dudes hunt with eagles. Let's do it. Yeah. I'd like, I want to do that type of thing. Well, you better go quick because I heard a lot of people are trying to work on that show. <laughs> I heard a lot of people have that lot. development. All of our friends, dude, they're just trying to fucking get at my territory. I know, man. Have you been to the Galapagos? I have. Oh, really? Yeah. How, when, how you old were you? You read my book. My sister lived uh, down in Quito. Yeah. And so we went and visited her down there. We went yeah. to the Galapagos. It was That's great. Rad. Yeah. That, that shit was mind-blowing. I'm sure. Especially, especially as just miserable as everything's going. To go to a place like that, it gives you faith in the earth. Yeah. And you're just like, that people are preserving this. And that there's this level of nature still around makes you a little more optimistic. I mean, for sure. So as you can see, Adam is a hardcore bird watcher. Something that when someone tells me they're a bird watcher and they're close to my age, I'm like, oh, they can't really be a, a bird watcher. He probably likes birds. But no, he's a hardcore bird watcher. And he talks about, he told me he's got these amazing, amazing tattoos, like the size of a softball on his body. Three or four of these magnificent birds. One that he's going to talk about in a minute, the sage grouse. And I just was like so baffled by this story because we had talked a little bit in the interview about gentrification, how like everyone's neighborhoods are changing. And we just think about how it's affecting us. But in this excerpt, Adam talks a little bit about how it's affecting these birds and how whether you think it or not, a bird can be sensitive. And I just thought it was a real testament to not just who Adam is as a bird watcher, but who he is as an artist and someone that can take in and have this amount of awareness when it comes to just bird watching and birds and the community around him, how that's going to bleed into his, not only his comedy, his television show, but his book as well. I'll tell you one more bird story to just get tell his me, second yeah, half man. going. I have, let me see if I have it. This is a, uh, this is a Gunnison sage grouse. Wow. Which is a Colorado bird. That thing's dope. Yeah, it's pretty great. Um, it looks like a pheasant or something. It is. It looks like a prairie chicken or something. 
but they're endemic to here in Utah. Um, so I wrote for Westward, which is a newspaper here. It's the Alt Weekly. And I was getting into birds pretty heavy. And so I was just trying to find bird stories. This bird's endangered, blah, 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 conservation. Mm -hmm. So I went out with this field biologist in Gunnison, which is, I don't know, three hours from here, pretty rural. And we went out pre-dawn. What's going on is they're like, these are very sensitive birds. And if you, they're born on a breeding ground called a lek, L-E-K. Mm -hmm. And so when they, they're born there and they return there to mate. And they do this like elaborate dance to attract their mates. And they have these sacks in their chest that they inflate. So it's like, and they dance, 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 and then track the females. And that's how they mate. But if that place where they were born, that lek gets destroyed or somebody builds on it or they drill on it, it's forever done. Yeah. That bird will die because it's, it's not going to reproduce because they, they're that they sensitive. They only go to one place. They go to where they were born and they have to reproduce there in that area. So, dude, it was like the most heartbreaking thing. We went out pre-dawn, freezing winter. You know, it was turning into spring when they mate. And we watched this beautiful Gunnison sage grouse dancing, doing his elaborate mating dance on top of like a concrete shack that somebody oh had built God. out there. Just like hopelessly dancing, trying to reproduce and attract the mates that weren't coming because this area has been destroyed. Yeah. And it was like the most heartbreaking, beautiful metaphor I've ever seen for just like leave this land alone. Yeah. It was, it was stunning. And now... How close would a bird, another one, have to be to mate with it? I mean, what do you mean? Like, how far does that sound travel or like... Oh, it travels very far. And, they, and you know, they're, they're in the same area. Like, yeah. the, the female, they're interested. The females are interested. Yeah. They're, so they're, they're coming around. But, yeah, it's just like they're so sensitive they can't do it anymore. That's insane. It sucks. How do they know they have, like, a homing device that it's exactly like we were talking about, spot. man. Yeah, that's the spot. It's just something hardwired in their DNA. Does that bird offer anything back can you eat it oh yeah oh Definitely. really people eat it yeah even but though it's not now not, not anymore now. yeah but you know native americans would for sure and early settlers and stuff why don't you breed them because <laughs> they're that freaking sensitive i don't think i could breed it over in my house That's a good point like oh god <laughs> here they go again just every year they're like successfully reproducing in kate and holland's backyard yeah. knowing adam's ability to see sensitivity in a bird will show you or give you an idea of just how sensitive or aware he can be in his writing and in this next this is a spoiler alert if you're going to read adam's book tragedy plus time there's a little bit we mentioned here that takes place in the book so maybe you pause now and then go read the book but it's not a giant reveal or anything that's going to change the story but it's a i wanted to i felt remiss if i didn't mention his book in this interview because it's so amazing and so powerful so here's a little bit about adam talking about how nature reveals itself to him from um, in relation to his, his family and how other people that have read the book have reached out how the universe or nature has reached out to them with loved ones from their past. I was like, what would my review be of this book? And one of the first <laughs> things I was going to say is, if you don't want to move to Denver, don't read this book. Because I was like, man, as much darkness that was in it. Yeah, sure. You know, you found a great balance between something super dark and then 
finding like the uplifting side, which is what was so goddamn beautiful about that hawk in the end. Yeah, you thank know? you. Um, I mean, I think everyone should go read it, so I don't want to say any more. But have you had any more hawk sightings? Like I see that him, close? No, nothing no, like that. Yeah, nothing like that at all. I see him a lot, and I still like like on this church over here is where I got married, and there's these two spires, and I'll often see hawks up there. Yeah, and so when we got married. I was like really wanted it and we came out of the church and came over to this park to take some photos and there was a hawk just parked on that church and I was like <laughs> yeah. that those ones are impossible yeah. not to feel that's amazing see I used to do a joke early on where my mom one day we were having a conversation a butterfly flew by and she goes it's your Nana and I'm like all right, Ma. And then I turned into him like, why is it always a butterfly? Yeah, sure. Why is it never a duck? Like, oh, here's Papa Joe. Here he is. <laughs> like coming Just over. Just sick duck in a park. Yeah. Um, it's funny. A lot of people have reached out to me and said similar things. Like for me, for us, it's butterflies. One guy's like, it's hummingbirds. And one guy said he and his brother will be hanging out and they'll smell cigarette smoke and their house in the backyard. No one's smoking. Yeah. They'll just smell it and it reminds them of their dad, you know? Oh, yeah. And it's just like, I don't know if you're looking for that stuff more when you have a pretty profound loss or it's looking for you, but it feels like a lot of people respond to exactly to that. And yeah. they're just like, we have this special feeling towards this tree or this animal. And I, I just kind of love that. You must go read Adam's book. It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic read and it, it gives so much insight into the human condition and uh, somebody who's an artist who loves not only his family, but his life and the world around him. And that being said, there was a little clip that I just wanted to share with you guys where Adam and I were talking about the idea of getting out there and taking part in the world because being a bird watcher means you got to get out there, you got to get involved. Being a comedian, being anyone who's going to participate in life, you need to get out and get involved. And I felt as though a little bit of this exchange was a great way to wrap up my interview with Adam about how both of us see the world of art and our need to continue to go out and explore it. And I also thought it was a great way to segue into my second guest. So take in this last bit before I get to Michael Kelly. I think people forget, like, to see new is tough. Like, it's not, I don't think it's in our DNA or nature to, like, want to do new stuff. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? It's hard. Like, you get trapped inside. You know, you're obviously a traveler, so you can you're more open to it than but i get we all get trapped in our own bullshit yeah. like my wife you know i'm so pretentious she, my wife loves theater she loves going to plays she loves going to opera she yeah. loves going all that shit and i'm the prick who's like if it's not new york city i don't want to see it <laughs> like i'm that, that guy it's like that's when i go to plays or something if yeah. i'm in new york and like she's like no let's go to this community play and just watch it and i'm like Oh, I love this. Within like five it's, minutes, it's I'm the like, best, man. why have I been so arrogant about this? There's thriving, cool theater stuff going on everywhere. Totally. My Kate and I, we do the same thing. We hop on our bikes, ride to a little spot in Marina Del Rey or in Venice. It seats like 60 people. And you sit there and you're like, oh, these people like rehearsed for months. Yeah. They printed right. tickets. They built props. They built sets. They have an interpretation of this play. Yeah. There's, a, there's some thought behind exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. That was Adam Kane Holland and the first half of this binocular episode. Do yourself a favor. Go out and get his book, Tragedy Plus Time. It's a phenomenal read. He also has a great show on True TV called Those Who Can't. Uh, I think they're in their third season now, and that show is available to watch. So go give that a watch. Uh, I mentioned at the top of the podcast how when I talked to Michael about doing an interview when I was in New York, I said, any chance you have anything connected to binoculars? And he goes, yeah, well, I just bought some for my kids because they got into bird watching. And I was like, oh, that's, that's perfect. So when I was on tour, I 
was headed to New York to do shows. And I reached out to Michael and I said, listen, when are you available? And he goes, well, what's good for you? And I'm like, well, I can do this time, that time, this time. He goes, well, I can only do this time. And I was like, well, why don't you just say what's good for you then, Michael? Um, and as you can see from this entire interview with Michael, we have a, a lot of fun joking around with each other. And uh, the beautiful thing about Michael is I sat and I asked him about politics because he's on such a political show, House of Cards. I just assumed he had to have a background in it. And it turns out that he started for politics as a kid and it led him to acting and acting led him back to politics. And I thought it was a great way to start this interview with Michael Kelly. Were you always super political? Or into politics and understanding politics and like being involved? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, I studied, my major was political science in college until, well, then, yeah. until but until I, and I, and I stumbled into that because I failed miserably at accounting and business management and all the Shut different up. business ones. I was just terrible at it, that shit. And I Where'd hated you go to it. school? Coastal Carolina. Coastal Carolina. That's right. uh, I was a runner and I was on a running scholarship, tried business, failed miserably, and, uh, Fell into philosophy, really dug that, but I was like, what am I going to do with this degree? Mm -hmm. And was sort of guided by my advisor in political science. And then one semester, I went for like a full load of all poli sci. I wanted to get the hard shit over with. And my advisor was like, dude, you do this and you will fail. You have to put some electives in here. And I was like, all right, just pick one. And he was like, right, if you want to be an attorney one day, you know, you should... Uh, you should Don't say take it. an acting class. Yeah. Son of a I swear bitch. to God, heaven. In college. And he was like, You should you should try it. And I was like, all right, cool. And a couple weeks in we had to do a scene and uh, I picked this really cute girl named Sunny. And we were scene partners, did the scene, and afterwards she was like, Can I see you after class? I was like, Yeah, sure. She's like, How long have you been acting? And I was like, Oh, I've never done this. And she's like, You have something there. She was like, You might want to think about this. You know, and I was I, like, I'll be honest. My advisor <laughs> thinks that maybe, maybe Paul sized the way. That's amazing. So, yeah. so then I made it my minor. And then in my fifth year, I went for a double major. And it was just, it was going to be impossible second semester. So I had three classes shy of poli sci. Listen, don't say in my fifth year, like everyone goes five. Okay. It's not everyone I goes five. I changed majors late, dude. Yeah. Like third year. No. Yeah. Third year. Cause I still had to get my. Either, maybe it was halfway through my third year. So I had to, they finished that pro. I was the first person to graduate from Coastal Carolina with a performing arts degree. Really? First person. There was four of us, but I was alphabetically the first one oh, yeah. to get that degree. <laughs> That's uh, tight. They finished it for us that semester. Has it grown since? Yeah, considerably. I it's would... a big musical theater thing now. Oh, okay. Not that I ever did any of that, but yeah. that's, it's become, yeah. And I still to this day thank those professors because they didn't have anybody to teach. They were two incredibly talented professors oh, yeah. who were like, Oh my God, you want to learn about this? Here, <laughs> totally. I have this wealth of knowledge. And say there's eight people in a class. I was one who was paying attention and wanting to absorb it all. Yeah. Did every play. And uh, yeah. And then I just. Were you uh, running track the whole time too? As soon as I got a scholarship for theater. Yeah. I quit running because they were like, I would try to do theater and I was running. How much running. money does Coastal Carolina have <laughs> well, when they have four <laughs> students? They're like, yeah, give them some money because clearly the... Well, what it was was that, you know, I, I was doing very well in theater. Like, I, all of a sudden I started getting A's and B's and just having great grades because I loved learning about this. There was something that I finally got. Mm -hmm. And 
I started to really excel and do all the plays and they were like, we got to get this kid a scholarship because he can't theater uh, running, you know, six, eight miles a day and working in the theater and doing oh, yeah. rehearsal. Like it was killing me. And they were like, and I said, but I can't quit running because it's the only way he's paying for my end state and giving me a little extra money. And they were like, hang on. And so what they did was if I, when I quit running, I got to continue a scholarship through the theater department. That's unbelievable. That my, see, my school wasn't, I feel like that's, that's a school that has like progressive thought. They're thinking forward instead of thinking like within what's ha- like that never would have happened in my yeah. school. Or you probably in a much bigger school. I mean, my, there was no, a my, few thousand kids in my school. Yeah. So was mine. Yeah. But it was liberal arts and it was Catholic. And it's <laughs> like, I remember like when I've been in LA for a couple years. So I started as a political science major. You did. In my first semester, I got four C's and one B and the B was in political science. And I went to my advisor and I'm like, Hey, I think I'm dropping political science. And she's like, why? And I'm like, it's just way too much. It's like so much reading. And I was like, I can't do it. And then she's like, well, what are you gonna do? I'm like, I think communications or something like that. And she goes, well, here, read my book. It's called political science and communications. And I was like, oh my God, I, get me out. <laughs> and like, I was like class vice president in my college. And anyway, and then I went to business and then I, then I flunked out, came back and became English, an English major. Wow. And I graduated with a degree in English, barely. And I was playing baseball and then like senior year, I did like the musical that was like a speaking part. And then I was like, I took a directing class. That's all they had. But when I graduated, I moved to LA and I started stand up and writing and some acting. And I used to keep in touch with my professors and I was like, Hey man, how come there's no like radio station or like TV class or film class or anything like that? And he goes, we teach two things, Jay, Shakespeare and the Bible. And everything that you're working on right now comes from Shakespeare and the Bible. And I was like, okay, man. Noted. That's good though. But it makes me pretty good, pretty good comeback. uh, I mean, he was the best. And then I like went back to perform there and he came to a show. Either way, I'm like, I would love to go like open a wing there. That's like TV film. You know what I mean? That kind of, yeah, we didn't, we didn't have any of that. It was theater. That was it. You know, Mm. it's funny. You, You graduate with those degrees and, you know, when I came to New York, is like I had no experience in the business. You yeah. I mean, I had a theater degree. The only way you learn about the business is by jumping into the business, trying to get your foot in the door in the business. It's I mean, having friends that are a step ahead of you, like Tom Scott, yeah, helped me all through that shit. You yeah, know? and then he took a quick step behind you. No, <laughs> my ass, my ass. You know what's <laughs> funny is like I see no one was around to ever tell me like. Hey, do you want to do something? Then just go get involved in it and you'll find your way into it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it doesn't, none of it has to do with college or degrees or anything like that. It has exactly to just be right. in the environment of that people are doing it. Yep. You know, like, and it's, it's so for me, when we talked earlier about like, you know, we're all just trying to create a better environment for our kids. Do you know how involved in my kid's school I am? I'm like super involved because yeah. I know that every day I walk in that school, I know every teacher, I know the principal, I put on a fundraiser, I volunteer. My kids see me that involved, they right. automatically feel at home. That's a place they want to be. That's a place they want to learn. Great, man. And like, that's my way of passing down because I'm like, you know, I don't have the money, but like, <laughs> but you like, you want to give them that like base where they know like, oh, hey, if look at, look at my dad, my dad, like when we go to a restaurant, I'm talking to everybody. Yep, and like, too. I've, I've heard stories about my grandfather. He, he was a baker, my grandfather. First, he worked on the atom bomb at Los Alamos. And then no shit. he was at Harvard for physics, 
got taken to Los Alamos, worked under Oppenheimer, was there for like three months, and then was like sent home. And he's like, I'm not doing this. Wow. And then his grandfather was a baker, so he opened a bakery. So I used, I heard this one story. There was a steakhouse in Massachusetts that was like huge. It had like five rooms, all like, like Sioux City, Kansas City. And you'd be waiting and they call you to like that room. Yeah. And the kitchen was huge. And my grandfather like was the kind of guy he would like walk up to the, the manager and be like, how you doing? I'm uh, Loring Larson. I have a bakery in Wakefield. I, I got to see the kitchen. Could I see the kitchen? And the guy was like, yeah, come on. Let's take you to the kitchen. And now I'm that guy because I want my kids to see like, hey, you want to learn about something? Ask yeah. someone. Yeah. Someone will yeah. show you. I was in a restaurant in Philly the night and this guy was, saw me walking around. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I just love the space. He goes, you want a tour? I'm like, yeah, show me around. <laughs> I would love to. And it's, you know. <laughs> it's it's so true. It's it's how, you know, I I think about it. I, you know, I was doing the backstage magazine, all that kind of shit here. Yeah. But my aunt called me one day and she was in advertising here. And she said, she had asked me many times to go to the actor's studio, the real house. Not, oh, really? Not the new school, but the, the actual house on 44th Street, uh, up there between 8th and 9th. And she said, go there. There's a volunteer program. Just go there. And I was like, I will, I will. And I was so nervous and I was so apprehensive. Oh, really? And one day, I'll never forget it, she called me. I was in my apartment on 12th between A and B. And she said, hey, how's it going on? How's good? And I, I, she said, what are you doing? I was like, oh, nothing. I'm just kind of hanging out. I don't, I don't work today. And she was like, she's like, you been to the studio yet? And I was like, ah, She stayed no. on you. No, but I'm, but I'm going. And she's like, okay. I'm staying on the phone until you put your shoes on, put your jacket on and walk your ass up to the actor's studio or the oh, train or whatever man. you're doing. Go there and fucking volunteer. And I'm like, all right. And I did it. And I was so fucking nervous. And I walked in, you know, it was Arthur Penn, Ellen Burstyn, all these people there. That's who was there. That's who was moderating at the time when I was there. And I went in and I was like, hey, I heard you guys have a program where you can volunteer your free time and watch session by the members of the studio. Yeah, sure. You interested? Like, yeah. And it, that was it. I got a job. I was working there four hours, one day a week, uh, scrubbing toilets, scrubbing the floors, cleaning up the backyard, taking care of the theater. Oh my God, your kids! Then are I me. became the captain of it. Then I ended up running the whole program uh, over the years. And yeah. then Arthur Penn took me under his wing, and I understudied like ten guys in a play. And that eventually, after I'd auditioned two years in a row, not getting into the studio, I'd been there for five at the time, and then finished this run of the play with him. And I said, sir, just, this was a great honor understudying these men. And I had to stage manage as well. I said, I learned so much watching you direct. He's like, oh, I got a surprise for you. You remember the studio. Wow. And at the time I was 26. I was one of the youngest members ever to get in at the time. Now, now the kids that go to the new school automatically get in mm -hmm. and shit. But, uh, yeah, man, you know, it's, it's like, get in it, get, get in, in that it. fucking world. Michael just has an ease about him that you can sit there and ask him anything and he can roll with it, whether we're talking about politics, acting, watches, sports. He's such a baseball fan. But I felt I had to bring up binoculars because that's what this through line was about and I wanted to have a little bit of insight into it about how we got to it. And we did talk a little bit about it and I wanted you guys to get experience so you didn't think I just made it up. Initially, I talked to you about this podcast. I was like, I'm like, I just want to sit down and talk with you, but I wanted to find something in common with other things. And I was like, what about we're at the premiere of All Square? And I go, what about binoculars? You got anything with binoculars? Like, yeah, I just bought some for my kids. What? And I was like, I could have just said anything right there. I think you would have had something.
<laughs> my son's really into birds. That's crazy. It is. He's, How did he get into birds? School. They 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 do. They they are the school's right by Tompkins Square Park, and very early on, they they take the kids on these field trips and they go look at all the birds. There's a hawk. There's this really, as a matter of fact, crazy as hell. Where it, the kids soccer practice this. We could go Thursday. And we get there and there's all this commotion on the field. And I look on the field and there's like a thousand white feathers on the on the ground, on the turf underneath the mm-hmm. backstop, because it's also a baseball field sometimes. Yeah. And I was like, and I looked up and there's a giant hawk on the backstop. Like a big, like a hawk. Yeah. And I look down the ground, thousand feathers. I get come come around the fence, I go inside, and there is literally a rib cage and two wings of a pigeon underneath this hawk. Mate. He just housed this thing in front of all these kids. Yeah. And Clinton walks up to it and he's like, yep, that's a pigeon. That was a pigeon. A white feathered pigeon. That's what that was. <laughs> <laughs> he's looking at a rib cage and two wings. And he's like, that's yeah. a white feathered pigeon. He's like, and that is definitely a hawk. Wow. It was awesome. You and know, I caught him. I have some pictures of him flying away. Oh, great. that's badass. Yeah, but he's Especially just really in into birds. He loves birds. So we got him and his sister nice binoculars to look from here. And they're so funny. They sit out there and they're like, it's so funny to open the window in the nicer days. You open that window, listen to the two of them talking. Okay, now fine. Now fine. Like I Most spy of the time almost. It's a pigeon. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> but there's, there is, there is a good, like I said, hawks. You know, that hawk, Tompkins Square Park to the Lower East Side. Yeah. You know, like two Giant weeks ago, this su- super, super, super rare bird was just in um, Central Park. No. Like a crazy rare bird. Like an eagle. Or- no, like a bird I would show you and you would be like, that's the most beautiful bird. Ever. It's like from Japan. Really? Showed up in... Only reason I say... The question that, is, is someone just... Did it fly out of someone's house? I have... I mean, how do we know? But... I sent it to my friend Adam Caton Holland, who's a stand-up and a uh, bird watcher. <laughs> and a bird watcher. Uh, this duck, those two go that hand duck in hand. Sh- showed up in Central Park. Wow. In- insane, right? Turn off airplane mode. Okay. So that bird just showed air- up. Airplane mode. I screwed up. I wanted to see it. That is insane looking. Yeah. And so like he's a hardcore bird watcher. So he subscribes to like all these different blogs and Twitter feeds and stuff like that. So if a bird like this shows up anywhere near him, he will just, he'll go and find it. Like hunt it. Like, oh, so it's there. All right. And like spend five hours trying to find a bird. Wow. But I mean, we never did that. No. I didn't bird watch as a kid. Send me that because Clinton will. will be like, what is that? Yeah, and that's, there's your adventure. Yeah. That's what I... Let's go find him. That's what the I Japanese love about Japanese duck in Central Park. <laughs> and you get there and you're just like, you see all these colorful feathers everywhere. Like, what's this? And you see a hawk just eating it. And you're like, oh, okay. So that's this that is how the world was works. the Japanese hawk. <laughs> well, Japanese that was him. Duck, and that is definitely a hawk. I mean... <laughs> You meet certain people in your lives, and when you sit and talk to them, you realize you like, there's more to this person than what everyone else is seeing. And I really wanted to know the backbone of Michael growing up. And one of the people he mentioned a couple times was his mom. And it's pretty amazing to hear, you know, we're talking about binoculars 
but what I'm taking away from Michael is his ability to see through all the bullshit in the world and get down to what really matters, whether it be hard work or staying true to your word. And I feel like a lot of that came from his mom. And here's a little bit of what he had to say about his mom. When I was in Atlanta, yeah, because yeah. once I got old enough, you know, me and all my buddies, right? Atlanta was 40 minutes and Athens was 50 minutes. Yeah. So we would go those two places to have fun. Yeah, I mean, but like when you're when you're parents with four kids and you were both yeah. your parents working? Yeah, no, they're not. Yeah, they're not camping. Not they're, my mom anywhere. was a Tupperware lady and my dad worked at Gulf Oil. And uh, yeah. What do you mean, Tupperware lady? Like she'd she sell was, it like door to door? She she started as that. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom's pretty amazing, actually. She, Did she go to college? Much later. She, when she was growing up, she was the oldest of four. Mm-hmm. She was the oldest of five. Her brother died 12, 13 years old. And so there was four girls left. My mom was the oldest. The dad left. My grandfather left him. And it was my grandmother. And my mom became the first one, obviously, to go to time to go to college. She stayed to help raise the other three girls. Jeez. Two of them became surgeons, ER surgeons. Holy cow. One became an ad executive here in New York. And my mother married my father, raised the four of us. I was in college. And everyone was... All the other kids were doing well and on their way. And she was like, I'm going to school. I'm going to go to school and get my degree I never got. And she went, got her undergrad and grad before I got out of my five years. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, or maybe like right around the same time. And she, um, she went to work. Uh, she got a governor's internship to go work for Atlanta Regional Division of Aging. And she worked for seniors for just retired a couple years ago for her whole second part of her life. Damn. And then she started her own charity, the Thanks Mom and Dad Fund, and she still works for seniors. Last night was her annual gala that I usually emcee, but Jack Ryan kept me from that this year. But uh, she's an amazing woman, just an amazing woman. But growing up, she was not just our mom. I mean, you had to have another job to help, and she was a Tupperware lady, then became a Tupperware manager, because if you were a manager, you got a station wagon. And sure we needed a family car. So she did that to help out with that part of life. And then eventually became a minivan. And then and then she went to college. What a badass. Yeah, huh? she's an amazing, amazing well, so woman. Hearing that about Mike's mom, you can see how how would you not be able to be successful in this world when you had someone leading by that example? But that's not the way Mike took it. He not only thought you had to be have that work ethic and obviously have some talent, but you also had to be ignorant. You had to pretend that the things that were happening around you weren't really happening. Otherwise, no one in their right mind would continue to move on. And I thought it was a really interesting perspective on trying to find your way in an impossible place. Ignorance is necessary. But I mean, you got to have ignorance or nativity yeah or you're never going to get to the next level because if you knew <laughs> if you knew what you'd actually have to do over that seven years there's no way you would have done right. it or if i didn't think it was going to happen yeah tomorrow 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 yeah i had, not get discouraged when it doesn't happen tomorrow yeah. like that's the whole thing right you just you have to keep thinking it's going to happen tomorrow but not be discouraged when it doesn't that's that's sort of what I mean, it's like trying to be an actor, right? Sure, but you it know? took me up until maybe like three months ago to actually <laughs> like realize that and just be like happy with what I was doing. You know what I mean? Like yeah. instead of like I remember when I was going to move. But if you to- were happy, then you wouldn't have the success you have today. If you were happy and complacent with what you had achieved, yeah, you were doing it. 
but you keep taking a step forward. Yeah. And, and it's like I tell young actors when I, I have a lot of young actors that I mentor and I'm like, as long as you see those baby steps, as long as you see you going in an upward trajectory, yes, there's going to be ebbs and flows and you're going to fall and you're going to have to get back up. But as long as those ups and downs continue on an upward incline, yeah. then never give up. Yeah. It's, you know, I have some friends that are still trying to do it today that have never had anything happen. Maybe one blip early mm-hmm. and then nothing happened. Like a certain point you have to say to yourself, all right, well, maybe this isn't for me. Yeah. You know, I don't know. But they have to be able to say it because everyone right. else can you see it. You can't tell them. No. And you, you can't, you know, it's not ever something I would say to someone, which is why I always, when I start talking to young kids, I'm like, this is the, this is the plan. And it might take you 10 years, but make sure something's happening in that 10 years. Yeah. Don't wait tables every day saying you're an actor and not be actively pursuing it. Yeah. Not be willing to give up that job as a waiter to go do a job for a little bit, for a lot less money than you're making as a waiter. Yeah. One of the huge benefits of this job is not just meeting interesting people, but it's a chance to meet and talk with interesting people and walk away knowing more than you knew maybe about the world or maybe more so about yourself and having a chance to sit with Adam and Mike for this, this episode really taught me a lot that one bird watching can be cool. Did you know? I didn't know it. I did not know that it could be cool, but clearly Adam has a passion for it and which leads to Michael is that if you have a passion for anything, you'll find a way to get it done. You'll find a way to make it happen. And that, Nothing can get in the way of you except yourself. And if you take a look at Adam's book, you'd find out, and you will find out, that there are going to be things beyond your control that can get in the way of you getting to where you need to be in life. And you're not always going to be able to see past them or see through them, no matter how big your binoculars are. But like Mike said, if you're ignorant to it and you work hard, you're going to be able to do anything you want to do. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey on this episode of Throughline. And I hope that the next time you see a pair of binoculars, you won't just pass by them and say, oh, look, there's some binoculars. Just pick them up. Look through them. See what's on the other side. Whether you're in a pawn shop or your uncle's garage, there's always going to be something interesting through the eyes of binoculars. I'm Jay Larson. We'll talk to you soon.